Well, good morning. It is good to see you guys. My name is Tim. I'm the pastor here. Love it that you've joined us to worship, not only in song, but now as we proclaim God's word. Uh, That is what we're about to do now as we continue our series, Who Do You Say That I Am in the Gospel of Mark. But before we get there, we're going to highlight one of our newer and, and growing ministries in our church, PBC Youth. And we have some of our youth in the service with us today, so it's a good time to do that. And I want to introduce you guys, our whole church, to somebody who's leading the charge in PBC Youth. Her name is Lexi. Harrison, and so she's going to come on stage and share a little bit about what God is doing in and through PBC Youth, and as she comes up on stage, Lexi, you can come. I want you to give her a gigantic PBC welcome. Would you do that? Yeah. That was kind of gigantic. Good job. I appreciate you guys doing that. Uh, So Lexi, why don't you tell us, uh, tell the people a little bit about yourself, why you're here at PBC. Yeah, so I'm Lexi. I have been here at PBC with my husband for a year. This is actually like our one-year anniversary here at PBC, which is kind of cool. But we really just love this church. We call it home. It really feels like a family here. We have been honored with the opportunity to host a community group at our home, which has just been really fantastic. And yeah, a little about my background with youth is that at my my past church, I was on the high school youth ministry, but here at PBC, the need is more for fourth through eighth grade, with most of the students being fifth and sixth graders, so I have had the opportunity to step into that role. Yeah, we're so excited to have you, and we love your family, we love Brady, Brady's often on the electric guitar over here, uh, strumming that thing, doing an awesome job, we love their family, and love Lexi doing this, and really... You know, in the lifespan of a church, our church is about to be five years old in October. And uh, as we started, like, maybe a year and a half ago, we just thought, hey, we need to invest into, we invest in our kids. We make little disciples of Jesus. It's not babysitting. It's a really big deal. But what about when these kids get a little bit older? What about when these families come who have older kids, middle school, high school? We need to start investing into that uh, and, and what we have now. And so we begin to care and equip the students that we have now. As Lexi mentioned, most of, them, most of them are in that fourth through eighth grade range. But our vision is not just to care for and equip those students. While it is, it's to see ultimately, we love to see middle school and high school ministries at our church. And that we're making disciples of all of those guys and all of their different age groups. And so Lexi uh, has that desire to, to see, let's care for this now and let's see it grow. Uh, and so she can't do that by herself. She has amazing volunteers with her. Uh, but she's going to talk about now how can people join into this? What is now, but what could be in the future? Yeah, so our vision for this ministry is to create an environment where kids can uh, experience the love of Jesus through their leaders and then also being in community together with one another, uh, but then also grow in the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has done for them. So we have a really good curriculum that is very Bible-centered and Christ-focused that is really easy, well, it's really, it's, it's easy, it's accessible to everyone to teach. You don't have to go to seminar to be able to understand the lessons. Uh, we actually, and then we also have a really great group of volunteers who are already a part of the ministry, which has been amazing to see a lot of people step up this past, this past season and really step into that ministry. But going forward, we need about five to six more volunteers who are willing to commit twice a month, that's what we're asking, to really invest in the students and build relationships with them. Uh, They can be a lead teacher or they could be an assistant and just come in love and be in relationship with the kids. But that's what, that's where we're at. And it's, yeah, so we really need that. And I would love to talk to you after service. I will be in the back, in the lobby at a table with some of the other leaders. Awesome. So, yeah, you can give it up for Lexi again. That's fine. Yeah. Um, I, I, have a, I have a middle schooler, and all of you at one point were in middle school, all right? Do I need to say more? Um, it's a pivotal time, right? And I know, again, being a dad of someone in 2019 who's in middle school, uh, everything in our culture works against them. Amen? Yeah. They need Jesus. And as much as parents, we can read books, we can give them guardrails, we can put them in a private school, home school, we can make them wear the same thing every day, like we... They need Jesus, right? Their hearts need to be rescued by Jesus and molded and shaped in the image of Jesus. That's what Lexi's doing. 
That's what our youth volunteers do every single Sunday, and that's what we're inviting you to help with. Uh, so we would invite you to do that. We need to pray as we do that. So I'm going to pray for Lexi, pray for our youth, pray for our volunteers. Would you pray with me now? Uh, God, I just pray for Lexi. I pray for our whole team of volunteers around Lexi. God, I pray for these little hearts of mine, some of whom are in this room today, uh, some of whom are across the street at Phoenix Christian School who you're going to bring here, some of whom are across Central Phoenix who you're going to bring here, and they are facing an uphill battle. Everything in our culture tells them to strive for success and status and Snapchat and what everybody else thinks of them and what they're wearing and what they're not. And just all those things are, are filling their minds and hearts every single day. And God, may we, driven by the Holy Spirit of you, driven by Jesus, may we impact their hearts and minds with the gospel of Jesus Christ. May it rescue them. May it save them. May many of our, our youth, middle school, high school, be baptized in these waters behind me, celebrating that they've gone from death to life for eternity uh, because of people like Lexi, people uh, like other volunteers who are even going to join them today, who join in and say, hey, we want to stand for the next generation, and we want to invest. And so, God, I pray for them. I pray for that process. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Would you guys give it up for Lexi one more time and thank her? Well, hey, uh, you know, Scripture talks about the church, and it talks about it in the New Testament sometimes as the house of prayer. And we're going to preach God's word, I promise you, but uh, we need to pray again today. And many of you know, uh, yesterday, uh, there was a shooting in El Paso. I think 20 people were killed, and I'm sure there's more details that have come out since. Uh, this morning, we were talking about stopping again and praying for that, and somebody in our circle was like, well, hey, also in Dayton, there was a shooting there, and we need to pray for them. And so some of you are thinking, I just woke up, I haven't even looked at the news, you, you don't know what's going on at all. Uh, when people are in pain, we need to pray, right? And we need to pray more than we post, and we need to pray more than we petition, and we need to debate topics, not destroy people, because we're the church of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to practice that right now. I'm going to invite you to pray with me uh, for the families, real families, who've lost people who probably thought they were going to go to church today or sleep in today or go to work next week and who've experienced immense pain that we can't even imagine. And so we're going to pray. Before we get into God's word, we're going to pray. Let's do that now. God, I thank you for being here with us. I thank you for being fully cognizant. Scripture says you don't sleep or slumber. You're fully aware of everything that goes on in the universe, much less in our country, much less in El Paso and Dayton. And God, I pray as we recognize that, that you're with us and you're aware of us and you're aware of everything good and evil, God, in this moment, you would, you would bring comfort. You would bring comfort to those men and women and those families in El Paso and in Dayton. You would bring the comfort that 2 Corinthians 1.3 says that is supernatural, that comforts those in affliction so that one day they might be able to comfort someone else who's also in affliction. And God, we confess to you. On this stage, I confess to you. I don't understand why these things happen. I don't understand why this would be allowed to happen, but we know, as we sang earlier, you are good. Your character, your nature, your person and work is holy and just, and that one day, all of these things that rock us to our core, even from afar, and make us cry out, that is unjust, and how could this happen, and how could this go unpunished, and that one day it will be punished just as all sin will be punished. And that scripture says that that day there'll be no more tears and no more pain and no more death. And so God, we, we cry out to you even in our confusion. We cry out to you for comfort and we cry out to you for a future that you are bringing to restore all things to yourself. And God, I pray that the men and women in El Paso and Dayton would have a keen sense of that future of that restoration, of an urgency to live life today because we don't know what tomorrow brings. 
that we would have that same urgency to live life today, worshiping you, giving our lives to you, trusting in you for the first time, trusting that you do have an eternal security for us, that as, as broken as this world is, God, you, your eternal security for, for your people is beautiful. And I pray that we would put our trust in that and not wait another moment. God, help us to continue to pray as we leave the house of prayer for these people, for others that are hurting. It's in the name of Jesus we ask that. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, we are going to get into our series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we are uh, in this series, Who Do You Say That I Am?, looking at the life of Jesus. And we've, we've done that now for 14th chapter we're in today. Uh, the Gospel of Mark is 16 chapters long. And so as you can kind of uh, see, we're coming to the finish line here. And, and it's almost over. And, and we've been in this Gospel for almost a year. And so some of you who are, are newer are like, man, I wish we could be in the Gospel of Mark longer. And I wish we could keep looking at the life of Jesus. There's, it's jam-packed in here. Mark says immediately, 40-plus times, it's like an action movie. And I wish we could be in this, this gospel longer. Some of you who have been around for a while are thinking, Tim, I've had a baby since we've been in this gospel. <laughs> Tim, like a few more gray hairs have sprouted since I've been in, in this gospel of Mark. And so some of you are excited to be at the finish line. Some of you are just getting into this with us. We welcome you all here to look at the life of Jesus and see how his life affects your life, affects every aspect of your life, even the painful parts of your life. Jesus affects our lives. He informs and affects everything we do in our lives. And so we're going to look at Mark 14 and see what that looks like. Now, as we get closer to uh, Mark chapter 16, we're getting closer to the death of Jesus. And so we're about to see not just how Jesus' life affects our life, but how his death affects our life. And we're going to see one of these significant moments as we lead up to the death of Jesus in Mark 14. So let's look at it together. Mark 14, we'll start in verse 1. Our first point, if you take notes, is costly adoration. Costly adoration. It says this in Mark 14, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now some context as we kind of drop in on this, especially if you're new. They are in Bethany. Mark says that. Bethany is right outside of Jerusalem. And you have some religious leaders who are plotting to kill Jesus. And this isn't the first time. They've kind of been coming up and thinking, how can we take this guy out? Because Jesus has affected their financial stability. Jesus, if you remember, he went to the temple and he removed all the business and all the marketing that was going on in there. He's affected these religious leaders in lots of ways financially, their prominence, their influence. And these religious leaders are starting to think, how can we take this guy out? And they're getting closer to doing it. And so they are plotting to kill Jesus, but they're also very pragmatic, do you notice that? They say, hey, now's not the time, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar. You see, we're going to talk about it in a moment. There's the Passover feast is about to happen. And that was like the biggest party of the year for Jewish people. It was a celebration, and we'll get into it more, but it was a celebration of the liberation of the nation of Israel from Egypt and slavery back in the book of Exodus. And so every year they would get together, they would have a huge feast, they would have a huge celebration, remembering what God had done to rescue his people. And there's a lot of people in this moment. Historically, we think maybe half a million to two million people have converged on the city of Jerusalem for this Passover feast, for this big celebration. And so the religious leaders, they're not too dumb, right? They're thinking, we want to plot to kill Jesus, but we're also pragmatic to know we don't need to do it now because if we do it now, we might find ourselves killed because Jesus has momentum. There's lots of people, and if we kill Jesus now, people might kill us, and so they don't want to do it now. So that's the stage that we come to. Now, Mark shifts a little bit. If you notice, verse 3, he shifts to a seemingly a completely different topic and story, and it kind of is. We see this account in John chapter 12, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels. We see this same account parallel in John chapter 12. John gives us a few more details, as we'll see in a moment. But what, what you see is this story fit in here because we get back to the story of people trying to kill Jesus. Right, verse 10, we see Judas. 
Even if you're not a Christian, never been to church, you've kind of heard about Jesus, Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, who helps the religious leaders kill Jesus. So he gets back to that, but sandwiched in there is this story, not about people seeking to kill Jesus, but about someone seeking to worship Jesus. And we're going to see why Mark does that and why he makes that contrast. Verse 3 through 9, we see this story of a woman who's worshiping Jesus. We see several characters in the story. We see Simon. They're at his house. We see some other people. We don't really know who they are. John, again, tells us a little bit more. Judas was actually there reclining at a table at this dinner. Other people were there in this moment. And we see this woman, who's the main character of this story, pouring perfume on Jesus' head. And then we see people get angry about that. Now, I don't know if you get angry about perfume unless it just smells really bad. But people get angry that this, this woman is taking perfume and pouring it on Jesus' head. It says they're reclining at a table. They're, they're having fellowship. They're having a meal together probably for hours. And this woman has the audacity to take this alabaster jar of perfume and pour it on Jesus' head. And people get angry about it. And they say, hey, Jesus, this is, this is not a good use of money. We could have taken this. This is expensive. Mark says costly perfume. We could have taken that. Instead of dumping it on your head, we could have sold it. We could have fed the poor. And you see Jesus, and it's kind of confusing at first glance. You see Jesus say, hey, listen, poor are going to be here forever. You got me right now. Focus on me. And I don't know if you picked up on that, but when I studied this and read that, I thought, well, Jesus, that's not very nice. I mean, Jesus, you, you came for the poor. I didn't come for the healthy, but for the sick. I came for the needy. And Jesus, you don't care about the poor? Like you want the perfume on your head instead of the poor being healed and fed and taken care of? And what you realize, again, John chapter 12, go read it on your own. You see Judas is at this dinner. And John isn't as um, nice or tactful as Mark. And he says, hey, Judas just wants the money. Judas is money hungry. We see that in Mark in verse 10 as Judas betrays Jesus for money. Okay, so here's what's happening here. Take this to modern day. You see something on the news and our government spent a lot of money. Right? Just hypothetically. I know that never happens, but just hypothetically. You watch the news and you think the government spent a lot of money and you kind of see what they spent money on. And you're like, I don't know if we should have spent money on that. Like, if we would have taken all that money, like, how many poor people could we have fed? You ever said that? How many times have you been driving around our city and you see this beautiful new museum or a beautiful new water park? Some of you have seen that. Amen. How many times have you seen this beautiful new sports stadium, right? And you drive by that and you think, I wonder how much money they spent on that. I wonder how many homeless people. We could have solved the homeless problem of Phoenix with all that money. But then how many of you have also done that, but also on a Friday night, driven downtown to a nice restaurant, nice, got your Sunday best on, shine your shoes, wife put a dress on, make, you drive downtown, and you go into a nice dinner, and you pass a multitude of homeless people. And you, you don't stop. You kind of you look the other way when they are looking at you. Because we got to get to that dinner. That's what's happening. Right? Jesus cares about the poor. Jesus knows their heart and knows they are deflecting. They don't want to talk about worship, which is what this woman is doing. They want to talk about some other hypothetical situation, like what if, and go on about their way. And so that's what's happening here in this scene. We're talking about costly adoration. We're talking about worship. And they don't want to deal with worship because they're seeing a woman do it in a way maybe they wouldn't do it, in a way they're uncomfortable with, in a way that doesn't seem productive. It's very costly. And so they're trying to deflect the conversation. So two observations there. We see the perfume is called Nard. Maybe you picked up on that. The office, Nard Dog. That's what I think of when I see that. I'm sorry, that's just a side note. Um, but nard is not from the office. Nard is an expensive perfume, right? Mark says that. He says it's very costly. We see verse 5. Look at the verse. How costly is it, Mark? 
It says it was worth about 300 denarii. A denarii was a day's wage. So you think 300 denarii, mathematicians, that's about a year's worth of salary. And so think about your salary. Think about your $300,000, $400,000 a year that you make. Right? Some of you. Think about whatever your salary is and think about, just picture this, everybody's reclining at a table, 300 to 400,000, 80,000, 40,000, your salary poured out on a woman's head. That's what's happening, right? It's a very costly perfume, just seemingly, in fact, it says that don't waste this. Why would you waste this? First thing you see. Second thing you see is this is a woman doing this. We get to learn a little bit more about the woman in John chapter 12. We think it was probably Mary, the sister of Lazarus, sister of Martha. Mark doesn't give us that detail here, but we just know she's a woman. And listen, in that culture, that's all you need to know. Again, picture the scene. They're reclining at a table, eating dinner. And that day, a woman shouldn't have been reclining at the table with Jesus, conversing with him. Women didn't do that with men. Right? This was scandalous. This was controversial. A woman should be up serving and doing those other things. And not only is she conversing with Jesus, sitting at the table, reclining at the table with Jesus, she's pouring perfume on his head. Anybody think that's weird? Right? Anybody just a little bit uncomfortable? I, I was as I read this. Right? I was just like, Jesus, don't do that. Can you just stop her? Like, there's a woman. Jesus, you're my Lord. The son of God. Like, and you're letting, I'm trying to picture like a woman just like pouring perfume all over your head. Like, don't, I don't know if you should be doing that. I don't know if you should be engaging this woman. It's not appropriate for that culture. What are people thinking? And as I read that and thought that, I started to think, this is what Jesus does all the time, isn't it? I mean, throughout the gospel of Mark, throughout the, all the gospels, Jesus makes us uncomfortable by who he engages I mean, he has dinner with a tax collector. I gasp, I know, like we hate taxes. And they hated him in their day, but it was more than just like the government's out to get me and why can't I keep all my money? It was these tax collectors, they're thieves, they're taking money off the top. And Jesus goes to a house to eat dinner, a sign of fellowship reclined at his table. And you start to read that account and you're like, Jesus, don't. We start to, you ever read this in scripture, you start to read Jesus doing something, you're like, Jesus, you start to redirect him. Like, don't go to the tax collector's house. Go to the temple. It's safer there. Like, Jesus, when he goes to a prostitute, starts to engage with her, Jesus, go back to the religious leaders. Do you know? She's a, she, she's a prostitute. Like she has sex for money. Can you imagine what people would say? And you, as you're reading those stories, you start to redirect Jesus and like, let's go over here. You don't realize who she is. And over and over, you see Jesus engage hurting areas and hurting people. And honestly, if we could parallel that to our day, we think, Jesus, don't stop for the homeless person. Oh, Jesus, you don't know what that person is known in Phoenix for what she or he has done. That, that is a corrupt politician. Jesus, don't go talk to him. Like, go talk to him. Be in a church. Jesus, sit in a pew. Get on stage. Like, do all that stuff. Or we're kind of uncomfortable, and we kind of like to rewrite the story. Like, Jesus, don't let this woman pour perfume all over you. That's weird. And we feel uncomfortable until we start to realize this is what Jesus does. We try to put Jesus in a nice box. It's holy, so he can't engage unholy people. He's a king, so he can't engage servants. Box, box. And Jesus is trying to show you in this moment, you can try to put him in a box, but he will not fit there. Right? He makes us uncomfortable. He engages the messy people. This is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is such good news. That's what it means, gospel. Because there's not just messy people, uncomfortable people to engage out there. There's messy people, broken people, uncomfortable people to engage in here. There's people that have sinned in ways that we've never shared with anybody, and he knows what you've done. And yet he welcomes you into this place. And he invites you. He doesn't just 
accept you and say, hey, go stay on the sideline. Don't mess this thing up. You're kind of messy. You're kind of broken, uncomfortable. People are going to think that's weird. No, he says, hey, come. Come to the altar. Come take a knee. Come raise your hands and come in this place and worship right where you are, not where you should be, right where you are with what you thought about this morning, with what you did last night, with the things you did that you don't even remember. There are sins against the holy God, and Jesus invites you to uncomfortably Worship him in the midst of your brokenness. That's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus does here. And this is a costly adoration. It's a costly worship, right? It's expansive. And maybe you're still kind of confused about the perfume. I just want to give us a few observations of, of her worship in general that do parallel to our day. First thing is this. This woman brought her best. She didn't spare any expense. A full year's salary. The jar itself would have been worth a lot of money. She breaks it. She doesn't open it. She breaks it. She pours it on his head. She, she brought the best. She didn't bring Axe body spray. She brought the best perfume. She brought the best worship. She brought the best time, talent, and treasure. It's costly adoration. She poured it out. She was generous. It was extravagant. She didn't just sprinkle. She didn't just say, I'm going to raise a hand a little bit and just in case anybody sees me. I, she... She was fully hands raised, heart laid on the table. I surrender all to Jesus, pouring out her worship, bringing her best. She focused on Jesus, and nothing else mattered. You don't think this woman knew what everybody else thought? You don't think this woman knew how people would talk about her? You're a woman engaging Jesus, pouring perfume on his head. You don't think this woman was aware of that? Yeah. She thought about what people thought about her just like you and I do. But she was so enamored with Jesus, so focused on Jesus. She saw her great need and his great grace, and it exploded in worship. It was the most natural thing she could do because she was fixing her eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of her faith. And all she could do, adore Worship, I got some perfume, it's the best thing I could get. I'm going to pour, I'm not going to just sprinkle it, I'm going to pour it out on his head because I'm focused on Jesus and nothing else matters. This is what happens when my wife comes home from work. The other day I had to watch the kids, my wife was working all day and just about the time they knew she was about to come home, they stopped playing with dad, they went to the front couch and they sat on the front couch for had to be an hour. And they looked through the blinds and looked out the window, and they thought, is she coming? A white van would drive by, and they would think, is that mom? Is she here? Is she here? To which the whole time I'm kind of like, guys, I'm right here. Daddy, right here. And you should have seen when my, my wife actually got home, she drove in the driveway, and they, my son specifically, he's six years old, she said, he said, she's here, she's here, she's here. And she runs, and he runs outside, and the siblings follow, and they run outside, and they run to the door. She'd been gone eight hours. Not a vacation, not a retreat, one day at work, but they saw the void in, her, in their lives with dad. <laughs> but they saw the value in mom coming home and, and exploded in worship and exploded in adoration. And listen, I thought about that moment. I thought, I should have used that. I should have made them do a lot of chores. I should have, like, gotten their piggy banks or, like, something like, hey, if you do all this, then you get to see mom. Like, I should have, I should have done that. I didn't. But, um, but that's what's happening. They would have given their piggy banks to see mom. They would have given everything to see mom in that moment. Right? That's what this woman is doing. It's a costly adoration. She's not thinking about the mechanics like, like we do, like you probably just did in service. Like, hey, should I stand up or should I sit down? Hey, should I, if I raise my hand this way, like is the shadow going to, is that weird? Like um, if I sing, should I sing bass or treble? Um, I, when we give, like should I give right now? Should I give online? Like is it cooler if I give right now? Like should I write a check? Does anybody do that? Like she ain't thinking about any of that, Right? She's thinking great need, great grace, exploding in worship, great void, great value, exploding in worship. I want to worship you. I got this perfume. I got my best. I want to pour it out. I want to do whatever I can to focus on you, and I don't care if other people worship you and if nobody else worships you. And if, no, if people think I'm crazy, I'm going to do it anyway. 
Listen, that's the kind of worship I want to have in my life. That's the kind of worship, honestly, to be candid, I don't have in my life a lot. Like as I paralleled my story with hers, I just thought, Jesus, I don't always bring my best, but instead my rest. I give you whatever's left. Like if I have time to look at my Bible after I look at my phone. Like if I have time in in my week to to give and think intentionally about ways to give tangibly through money, other ways to give to other people, to send people a text, to just worship and song as as I go throughout my day. I think, well, if I, if I exercise and, and phone, that takes a lot of time, and watch this thing and um, debate this person, and then maybe I'll get to you and worship you. She gives her best, not the rest, but that's what I often do. I often don't pour out, but I sprinkle. I don't, I don't want to get too crazy. I don't want people, what if people thought I was kind of weird, like one of those really weird spiritual worship people, and like, what if that offended some people? I don't want to get too crazy, and I just kind of sprinkle instead of pouring out everything. I don't get focused, but instead I'm distracted. I often have FOMO on what other people ate for lunch <laughs> in social media, what people might think of me, instead of focusing on Jesus, God who became flesh, who was born as a baby in a barn, who was perfect but also could empathize with me, who is powerful, but who also loves me, who is king, but also servant, whose cross and crown, whose lion and lamb, who we get to read about and know on a personal level and often focus on a lot of other things instead of focusing on him. And as I focus on all these other things, I I care more about those things than I care about the son of God. And I don't want to do that. And I don't want you to do that. Because listen, that is a waste. They say, this woman, you're wasting it. Listen, FOMO and social media and your career and your salary and your retirement, does it matter? It matters. Jesus matters more. Like, don't waste your life on these things. What we just saw in El Paso and Dayton, what we see every day when people lose their life Life is a vapor. You do not know what will happen tomorrow. Don't waste your life. Don't spend your time here on this earth not thinking about the time you'll spend in eternity with God. Focus on him. Worship him. Listen, my prayer for our church is not just individually we would do this, but collectively. We would have costly adoration. We would have extravagant worship. When we sing... When we sing, we invite you to sing, and maybe you worship in different ways. Whatever the way you worship is, if it's, if it's externally and God uses you in that way, if it's more privately, that you would worship, that we would not go through the motions. There's too many other things worth doing on a Sunday than coming in church and treating it as a hobby and going through the motions and standing up and sitting down and reciting and singing songs to make sure everybody knows we're religious and spiritual. That is dumb. I want this church, my prayer for our church is that we would be like this woman, that we would bring our best, not the rest, that we would pour out, not sprinkle, that we would focus on Jesus, not everything else around us, right? Because there's joy there. It's costly. Yeah, maybe if other people will say things about you, maybe you have to give of your time, your talent, and treasure. Yeah, is it costly? But it's worth it. He's worth it. There's joy there. That's what this woman realizes is she worships Jesus extravagantly. We see verse 9, that this woman will be remembered for all of history for what she has done. She is fulfilling her purpose in this moment as a worshiper of Jesus. That's your purpose. And some of you think, well, Tim, I'm kind of just, I'm a productive person. I like to go to work. If you want me to serve, I'll do that. If you want me to do some other things. But this whole worship thing, pouring perfume on a head, giving of my time, talent, treasure, and utter worship to God, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. It doesn't seem super productive. What I would say to you, it's purposeful. At our leadership retreat this weekend, we had 30 leaders gathered together over the weekend to pray and plan for you and how to equip you for the gospel, for the mission of Christ. And one of our groups, one of our people said this, hey, my prayer for this next season is that we would be purposeful, not just productive. We said, that's it. And that's what she's doing. Your purpose. I don't know if you know what your purpose is, and you think of that in terms of your career and your job and your family and where your kids should go to school and the scholarship they're going to get. Your purpose is to worship Jesus. That's what this woman is fulfilling. She's fulfilling her purpose. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for our church. Costly adoration. Our second point, 
is costly abandonment. We see that in verse 10. Look at the verse. It says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Stark contrast, right? Here's where we get to the plot, again, to kill Jesus. And it's through Judas betraying Jesus. And we start to see how these religious leaders are going to execute this grand plan to kill Jesus. Look at verse 12. We see this feast start to take place, this celebration. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sends two disciples and says to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready, and there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them and prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the 12, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one of you who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into this dish with me, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So you see this Passover is beginning to take place. It's a big deal, so big of a deal. Jesus sends people ahead. Hey, we got to figure out how we're going to do this. And they they go and they plan for the Passover celebration. But we quickly see Mark shifts from celebration to sorrow. Did you see it? Jesus starts talking about betrayal. Now you got to picture this. Again, this is a feast. The Passover feast was four parts. Each part of the feast started with a glass of wine. This is a celebration, the biggest party of the year. And yet, the celebration turns to sorrow because Jesus isn't celebrating. He's talking about betrayal. And I just, as I read that, I tried to picture the scene and just thinking like, Jesus, we've waited all year to celebrate. We got four-course meal, wine, great food, and you're talking about betrayal? Jesus, that's kind of a killjoy. Like, Jesus, you turned water into wine. Where's that Jesus. We want to lift you up on our shoulders. Stop talking about betrayal. That's not as fun to talk about. And we see celebration shift to sorrow because Jesus knows what is coming. He knows that Judas is about to betray him. He knows his path, that there will be celebration. But right now, he's on a path to sorrow. He's on a path to death on a cross that will come by betrayal of one of his closest followers. And what I thought was so interesting and humble, as much as we give the disciples a hard time, their humility in this moment to say, is it me? I guess, geez, is it my sin? Like, I, I know I, I have a sinful heart. Like, are you talking about the things I did yesterday? Are you talking about those thoughts I had to run out on you as well, to abandon you? Like, Jesus, are you talking about me? So you can't always say this about the disciples, but in this moment, we can learn from them, right? As I said before, as you think about Judas right away, betray, he betrayed Jesus, and we tend to just crack on Judas, but what about the way we, we betray Jesus? With our sin of commission, the things we've done in outright rebellion to Jesus, our sin of omission, the things we haven't done when Jesus has called us to obey him and we've sat by on the sidelines and said, no, I'll just think I'll stay over here in my safe bubble. And many of us have betrayed Jesus in our own way and we need to be thinking through, is it me? Is it my sin, the sins I remember? Is it my sin, the sin I've forgotten about? Is it the thoughts, words, deeds of me that betray you, Jesus? Like, I don't want that to be my life. And that's what the disciples do, is they wonder, they have some deep self-reflection, like, is this me? And we would all do well to do that, because there is a cost of abandonment. Verse 21, if you look at that verse, Jesus says it, and it's sharp. He says, it would have been better for this man who betrays me to have not been born. Sharp, we need to think about the way we betray Jesus because the consequences are grave. And Jesus points those out. You see, here's the reality in life. 
There's two options for us. There's two costs. There's a cost of adoration. Some of you have thought about that cost. When you became a believer a long time ago, when you became a believer recently, as you think about becoming a believer in Jesus now, you think about the cost. Well, Tim, if I, if I believe in Jesus, what will these people say about me? If I believe in Jesus, how will this affect my job? If I believe in Jesus, I have to start tithing and giving generous. If I believe in Jesus, how is this going to affect my time, my talent, and treasure? There's going to be a cost. And especially as you look at things like El Paso and Dayton, especially as you look at things in your own life that don't compute and don't make sense and are painful and the sin, sickness, and strife in your life, and you think about if I worship Jesus in the midst of those things, there's a cost. Like, I don't get it. It's not comfortable. There's a cost. Listen, there's only two options. There's that cost of adoration, and then there's the cost of abandonment. There's the cost of adoration that looks around and says, yeah, there is some pain in the world. There is some sin in my life. There are some things I don't understand, but I face it, and I cry out to Jesus for help, for mercy, for his goodness to be displayed, for comfort, for trust, for more faith, to believe. There's the cost of that kind of adoration, facing the pain and then going to the person of Jesus in worship and, and a cry for help. There's the other cost that many of us take and many of us have experienced that looks around at all the pain and says it's too much to face. And so I'm not gonna face it and cry out to Jesus for help and worship him in the, in the midst of it. It's too hard. I'm gonna escape the pain I'm going to escape the conflict in my marriage. I'm going to escape that divorce. I'm going to escape that sin. I'm going to escape that pain out there that I don't understand. I'm going to escape it, and instead of asking Jesus, facing it, asking Jesus for help and worshiping him in the midst of it, I'm going to numb the pain, and I'm going to run to addiction, and I'm going to run to distraction. There's a cost of adoration. There's a cost of abandonment. The cost is way greater there. The cost is way greater of abandonment. We see Jesus say that. He doesn't mince words. He could have said it in other ways. He said, hey, that person's going to go to hell forever. He says, it would have been better for you not to have been born than to betray me, than to abandon me. To face all that life has to offer, the good and the bad, and say, instead of crying out humbly and worship to Jesus and humbly and help for him, I'm going to escape. I'm going to numb. I'm going to full go full force in this addiction, full force in worship of myself and my understanding, even though it may be finite, instead of God's understanding, that's infinite. There's two costs in life, and you have to choose one, right? Jesus chose to show us vividly that the cost of adoration is way better than the cost of abandonment. He shows us what it's like to be abandoned, by the Father on the cross, to pay for sin, to be up on a hill where everybody can see all the brokenness. The hill wasn't enough to elevate, so he put him on a cross to show you, hey, this is the cost of abandonment. This is the cost of your sin. This is the cost of your strife for all of eternity. It's for the Son of Man, holy, never sinned, to be killed on a cross in agony for hours to be buried, and he shows you that cost so that you can choose. In light of that cost, I want to worship you. I don't want to abandon it. I don't want to escape. I don't want to numb. I want to look at the pain and the good. I want to look at the evil and, and the best things about this world, and I want to worship you because the cost of abandonment, abandonment is too high. We see that. Look at verse 22. It says, and as they were eating, Jesus takes the bread and after blessing it, he breaks it, he gives it to his disciples. He says, take, this is my body, and he takes a cup. And when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until that day when I drink in the new kingdom of God. So we're starting to see the, the cost of abandonment. Jesus is foretelling the cost the price he's going to pay on the cross. He says, hey, this cup, it represents my blood. This bread, it represents my body. 
And again, you have to picture this scene or else you'll miss it. They're thinking Passover, Exodus, Old Testament, long time ago when God rescued the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt by painting the innocent lamb's blood on their door. And Jesus, God, passed over them, rescued them, saved them out of slavery, did not kill them, even though they deserved that for their sin. He passed over. Jesus, that already happened. And Jesus is saying, hey, no, we're no longer looking back at that. We're looking forward. There's something coming greater than that, that I'm the innocent lamb that my blood is going to be spilled, it's going to be poured out for all of sin, past, present, and future, and that's how you get passed over, that's how you get rescued and reunited in a right relationship with God, and that's going to go through me, and it's going to be final for all eternity. And Jesus starts to point them to that. And what I love about this imagery is he says specifically, my blood, it's going to be poured out. You see that? It's a new covenant. My blood's going to be poured out. Not sprinkled. Poured out. There's two things that are poured out in this passage. One is a bottle of perfume. Expensive, costly, spared no expense, gave the best. The other thing that's poured out is the blood of Christ. Spared no expense. The sinless son of God came down from heaven, the right hand of the Father. Glory was born in a barn, died on a cross. Religious leaders who were supposed to praise him, persecute him. It's embarrassing. It's painful. It's ours. Again, up on a hill. No, let's put him on a cross. That's even higher so everybody can see the embarrassment, so everybody can see Jesus, the Son of God, killed, murdered. His blood was poured out. This perfume was poured out. It's costly adoration. It's costly abandonment. The Father put Jesus on the cross to show you that. It's costly. Jesus poured it out. The woman poured it out, said, Jesus, you can have all of me. Jesus does the same thing for her. Do you see it? He does the same thing for you. He pours it out. Not just on your head but your heart, your life, your career, that marriage, that conflict with that person, that bitterness that won't go away, that seeing things outside in other cities that are painful, he poured it out. He spared no expense. He gave his best for you. It's costly adoration. It's costly abandonment. Now, closing question. As we think about worship, as we want to have this costly adoration, we don't want to abandon, we don't want to escape, we don't want to numb. We want to go to Jesus in the midst of all the good, because there is some good. There are new mercies every morning in your life and our world. There are things like we should, it should boggle our minds that the goodness of God, you are good, good, good. Why are we alive? Why do I have breath? Why do I have a muscle the size of my fist keeping me alive right now? Why do I have this relationship? Why do I have this church? Like, God, you're good. There are some good things, but amidst the good things and the bad things, why don't we relinquish all and worship to him? I want you to ask yourself that question. I want you to do it this way. What needs more attention in your worship? Is it your great need or his great grace? You see, the woman saw both. And some of you are thinking, well, Tim, probably both in my life. Like, I need to be more understanding of my need, but I also need to, man, Jesus is amazing. I can't believe he poured it out for me. Like, I also need to see him as he truly is. And I need both, but I, I would bet some of you are in one of those places today. That today, maybe you walked in here and you just thought, I have done some things and I do have a past. And Tim, if you knew what I've done and what's been done to me, and you don't know if you realize God's great grace, and you don't know if it was poured out for you. I know I've seen the cru- I've seen the cross. I mean, I get he did that for the world, but I don't know if he did that for my specific sins. And you need to see the great grace of God that he died for you, for all your sin, that he poured it out for you. Some of you this morning are at the opposite end of the spectrum. And you walk in today, and it's actually cool in this place, and you think, well, I got some AC. <laughs> 
I'm sitting next to my honey. We're going to go out to eat lunch after this. And life is good. Why all this talk about pouring out stuff? I just talk about raising a hand and, and, and costly adoration. Like, I, it's not costing me anything to be here, Tim. And you need to think about your great need. That as religious as you are, you grew up in a pew. You are sinful. Your, your righteous deeds are as filthy rags before a holy God. And you need to, in this moment, not just be reminded of God's great grace, but your great need. And worship God. And give him everything. Give him not the rest, but give him the best. Not just sprinkle it out, but pour it out. Ask God, hey, there's a cost. Like, if I don't do that, there's another cost. I want this cost. Because at the end of this cost, whatever I give to you, I get you. The sinless son of God for all of eternity who loves me unconditionally on my best day and my worst day. And I want that. And whatever I have to surrender to get that, that's what I'm going to give my life to. Where are you today? What part do you need to reflect on? His great grace, your great need. Let's reflect reflect as we pray. Father in heaven, I pray that um, just now we would would see you as you truly are. We would see just this this imagery that you poured it out for us. You ask us to pour it out for you, but you've already poured it all out for us. You, You gave us your life. You came down from heaven. You know what it's like to to live a life in in, in anonymity. For 30 years, nobody even knew who you were. A lot of us feel like that. You know what it's like to see pain. You know what it's like to cry and weep and see Lazarus die. You you know what it's like. And yet, God, you, you come anyway. And just like the woman, people probably thought, that's, that's foolish. We could do so much other stuff with that. And just like with you, Jesus, we could think, well, for people, like I know some people. <laughs> and they're indifferent to you and they reject you and I do that. And why would you give your life? Why would you pour out? And you do it anyway. And God, I pray that we would see that and we wouldn't calculate and we wouldn't maneuver. We would just worship freely. And God, I pray that you would help us to do that now. With our time, with our talent, with our treasure, with our hands, with our head, with our heart, we would worship you with everything we have because you're worth it, because we get you. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.